Welcome, and thank you for joining us in today's teaching as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. Here is Pastor Greg. We're going to uh, continue our study this morning, uh, going through the book of Revelation. If you want to turn there to Revelation chapter 20, we're going to be covering uh, verses 7 to 10 this morning. But chapter 20, if you remember, is really talking about the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, That millennium means a thousand-year reign of Christ, which I have shared in our last study in this chapter that I believe it's literal, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. In chapter 20, and this is what is important to know when you look at the book of Revelation, is that what you're getting here in in this letter really is just... uh, little portions of what's taking place. You're not seeing all the details being laid out. As a matter of fact, in chapter 20 of Revelation, 1,000 years has transpired in this chapter. It's, you think, and when we start thinking of these periods of time, 1,000 years has just been covered here just in one chapter. From chapter 1, or really from chapter 4 to chapter 19, We have seven years of the tribulation period that were covered. Chapter 20, a thousand years of time will transpire. In these first three verses, really, and I want to do a little bit of a recap to bring us back around, but in these first three verses of chapter 20, John sees an angel of God here who has been granted authority to come down from heaven to earth. And this angel was given a key. He was also given a chain in his right hand. He's he's got this key, he's got this chain, and the key that was given to him was for the opening up of the bottomless pit. The chain that he held was for the binding of Satan... And this angel was given the authority by God to be able to bind Satan and to throw him into the bottomless pit. It's also referred to as the abyss. The abyss, the bottomless pit is the underworld. It's the place really for demonic spirits, unclean spirits that inhabit this place called the bottomless pit. It's important to note that this bottomless pit is not going to be the place of Satan's final doom. This is, not, this is going to be the place where Satan is going to be bound for this thousand-year period of time, but it's not going to be his final destiny. It's really going to be, if we could say, a temporary imprisonment. I put together this slide here to show you really the different places that Satan has dwelt. These are the uh, six abodes of Satan. The first place, as we know, that Satan dwelt was was in heaven. 
there with God. You can read about that in Isaiah 14 there, where Satan lifted himself up and wanted to be like the Most High God, and he was cast out of heaven and cast down to earth. His second place that we see is in Genesis chapter 3, where he was there in the garden with Adam and Eve, and of course as the tempter that came to Adam and Eve there. The third abode was referred to really as the atmospheric heavens, meaning that Satan himself had the ability to be in the heavenlies, but also to be on earth here. And we know that he was in really in both places. We know that he went before God when he tried to uh, bring accusations about Job. And he had this access really to be able to have this communication with God. That's really where Satan is today. That's his abode today. In the heavenlies, but here on earth. Remembering that Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. But there are demonic forces that are also in our world. This fourth abode is when we read in Revelation chapter 12 about Satan then being cast down to earth cast out of heaven and so there is coming a time yet future that Satan is going to actually with all of the demons be cast out of heaven and cast down to earth his sixth abode or his fifth is the bottomless pit in our text this morning Revelation 20 where Satan is going to be bound for this thousand years and then lastly he is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, which will be his final abode where he's going to be. In chapter 19, verse 20, we read that, look at your Bibles, that the beast and the false prophet, that they they both have already been thrown into the lake of fire. Once you are thrown into the lake of fire, that's it. They had already reached their final destiny, the beast and the false prophet, But this angel here of God, we're told, he lays hold of Satan uh, with his chain and he puts him into the bottomless pit. And we're told that he shuts him up and he sets a seal. Now, some translations read that a seal was upon him. And some just read that he sets a seal. We don't know what that seal will be. It's some way that it probably, more translations read that a seal was set upon wherever it is that he is thrown into through this door. It gives you this impression like one of those wax seals or something that was sealing him into this abyss for this thousand year period of time. But we're told that once he's sealed there, it keeps him from deceiving the nations for this thousand year period of time while Christ is reigning here on earth. We might say in regards to this that the binding of Satan and God giving this angel the authority to do so, that it was really a necessary preparation for this millennial reign of Christ that was about to come. Satan was going to be bound, no longer able to go out and deceive the nations. And then we read that when the thousand years are finished, that this angel is now given the authority to come to the abyss and open it up and release Satan 
actually release him from that abyss. And then we're told that he's going to go out to deceive the nations once again, but it's only going to last for a little while. You know, I start thinking about all of this, and it makes me really ask the question, why? Doesn't it make you ask that question? Here's Satan finally bound. He can no longer deceive. And here is God giving this angel the authority to go release him. To let him come out and to go out and to deceive the nations once again. Look in your Bibles. Let's read the text, the first three verses again. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he, this angel, laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. I don't think there's any question when you read verse 2 of who we're talking about here. He gives all these names here. This is Satan himself that is being bound. Verse 3 says, And the angel cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished, but after these things, Satan must be released for a little while. I shared and have shared in the past some past studies that God has a purpose in everything that he does. God doesn't do anything without purpose. But have you ever noticed that God's ways are not always your ways. (laughs) The way God does things are not necessarily the way that you would do them. The things that God allows to come into your life individually, uh, you would say, God, why? Why are you allowing this? Uh, Why would you let me go through this kind of hardship? What good could come out of this? Our ways are not God's ways. And so when we read these things and we read about Satan being bound, Satan being released, God has purposes in everything that he does. I think there's a few things that we could find that are the purpose for this millennial reign of Christ. Why a thousand year reign of Christ? Why not just go right into eternity? Let's leave the thousand year out and Satan being bound and being released. Why not just go in? Well, I believe that this is necessary really to fulfill biblical prophecy. It has to happen because God said that it would. And so what we're going to see or what's going to happen in the future is that it must come to pass. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Number two, that... The covenants, and I shared this a few weeks ago, that this millennial reign of Christ is really to fulfill the covenants and the promises that God made towards Israel. God, many places throughout the Old Testament, as I shared a few weeks ago, it's like there's more written about this millennial reign of Christ then you could even imagine there's just loads of Old Testament scriptures that refer to this coming day. 
And it all has to do with these covenants and promises that God had made to Israel. And God is going to be faithful to fulfill those things. But thirdly, he's going to restore God's throne. And it's going to be a kingdom, a righteous kingdom. Uh, God is going to take what has been destroyed by Satan in this world now, and he is really the God of this world. God has allowed him to be the God of this world. He's going to take that back, and there's going to be a righteous kingdom here on earth that's going to be restored. This is all fulfillment of what was already said in the Old Testament. What we're reading in chapter 20 is just a little bit. This is just like, this is just the summary of what everything he's already told us would come to pass. But notice in our text here, in verse 1, verse 4, verse 11, and 12, we see this repeated words of John, I saw. What John has seen in this vision, he's literally, I believe, seen this vision of these thrones that he is seeing here. He sees in, in verse 4, we read, I saw thrones. I think John literally on the island of Patmos there was actually seeing this vision that God was giving him of these thrones and he saw those that sat on them. And we're told that judgment was committed to them. This is now really John in this chapter looking ahead future. John is getting this vision. He's seeing something that has not yet happened. This is yet future. He's seeing this revived earthly kingdom where Christ is going to be sitting on the throne of David. This righteous and revived kingdom here on earth is what John is getting this picture of. Christ ruling and reigning. And he sees these thrones, plural, And those that were sitting on these thrones, there with him. Back in Revelation chapter 4, when we were there, we read about the 24 elders. You remember that? The 24 elders that were told were sitting on thrones. Now, I'm of the opinion, and and many others are, but I'm of the opinion that the 24 elders that are spoken of in Revelation 4.4 is representative of the church. And so when we read in verse 4 of our text here, and I saw thrones and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, I think it's very possible that these are thrones that the church are going to be sitting on as we reign with Christ in this millennial kingdom. Also in the heavenly scene in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we see the church is in heaven now. The church has been raptured. The church is in heaven, and they're beginning to... uh, They see the Lamb of God there in this heavenly scene. And they begin to sing, we're told, a new song. And they're worshiping the Lamb of God, and this is what they're singing. You are worthy to take the scroll... And to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. 
That was the church singing this new song to the Lamb there in heaven as we've already been raptured and we're in the presence of God. You have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And I believe that that is a picture really of this millennial kingdom that is going to be here on earth for a thousand years. In chapter 20, verse 4, John says that those sitting on these thrones have been given authority to judge. Uh, You know, it's interesting that the uh, position of somebody obviously sitting on a throne, uh, the position of a judge when somebody judges is that judge is sitting down. The people that are being judged, though, are people that are standing, aren't they? So here's John seeing these visions of thrones, plural, and I believe the church in heaven reigning with Christ and ruling with Christ, and we're sitting there on thrones with Christ. In chapter 2 and 3 of, of, of Revelation here, we have the seven letters to the seven churches. And we read in uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 26, about the church at Thyatira. And this is what it says. This is the promise that was given to the church at Thyatira. It says, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Now, remember, this is a letter written to church, written to believers. He says, I will give you power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. This is a promise, I believe, given to those who would overcome within the church. In Revelation 3.21, the promise that is given to the church of the Laodiceans. It says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's a promise to the church, to those who would overcome, that he would grant them to sit with me on my throne. I believe that the church is going to be ruling and reigning with Christ for this thousand years. In 1 John 5.5, we read this. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you are a child of God this morning, if you know him as your Lord and Savior, then do you know that you're already an overcomer? Overcoming is not you trying to make it into heaven. Overcoming as a believer is that you have given your life to Jesus Christ. You've placed your faith in the cross of Jesus Christ, and you became an overcomer simply by your faith in him. Who is he that overcomes the world but he that believes that Jesus is the Christ? Some believe that these thrones that we're reading about here, that they are the thrones that the apostles are going to be sitting on when they judge Israel. We read in the uh, Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said this to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, now to pick up on this, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory... 
which I believe is referring to this millennial reign, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now he's speaking this to his apostles, to his disciples. He's talking about in the regeneration. Now this word regeneration in some translations is translated in the renewal or in the regeneration. Uh, The word actually in the Greek means the establishment of a messianic kingdom. And so in context here, I believe what the Lord was telling his disciples is that in this regeneration or in this renewal, you are going to be sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Keep that thought in your mind as we go along uh, this morning. This millennial kingdom is also going to be a time of reward for Christ's disciples. We read in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 27, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, who were later going to become his apostles, this is what he says. He says, he asks them really a question. Who is greater? Uh, He who sits at the table or he who serves? No, Jesus goes on to answer. He says, is it not he who sits at the table? He was speaking about a person sitting at the table like a a guest of honor. Which one is greater, the person sitting at the table or the one that is out there serving us that are sitting here at the table? He says, yet I am among you, he tells his disciples, as one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. He's telling his disciples this. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Think of what that's going to be like. A thousand years reigning with Christ. You're going to be there if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Reigning with Christ. And there is going to be some authority of judgment that is even going to be given, I believe, to the church. As well as to the apostles that are going to actually sit there as judges for Israel during the millennial kingdom. Look at back in your Bibles at verse 4. John says, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You know, when I read this, about these souls being beheaded for their witness. They're being for their witness and for really for the word of God because they refuse to take the mark. These are people that get saved during the tribulation period. Did you know that there's going to be a multitude of people that are going to give their life to Christ, that are going to believe during the tribulation? The church is already raptured in heaven. 
And then there's going to be that seven years and people will be getting saved. But people that get saved during that time, there's going to be many of them that are going to have to be martyred for their faith. It's interesting that the mode of death during the tribulation period, we're told, is by way of beheading. Isn't that interesting as we're watching our news today, isn't it? Looking at what's going on, I looked up uh, just this whole thing about Islam and what's the whole thing about beheading? Why are they so adamant about beheading people? And what's going on in, in, in the Middle East there with ISIS even right now? And not just with ISIS, but just with many Muslim groups that are out there. And I started looking, why is this the mode or the means by which they want to take lives? I started reading a little bit about ISIS and the beheading, and this is one thing that I read. Those who so zealously remind us uh, that people are trying to say that ISIS is really of no particular religion. They're not really connected with Islam. Don't believe that lie because they are fully connected with the whole ideology of Islam that's out there. Though it may be distorted, it is still connected. But it says, it goes on in this one thing that I was reading. In fact, ISIS not only speaks for a particular religion, which is Islam, but it also mimics every act of brutality perpetrated by its founder, the prophet Muhammad. From subjugating and raping women to beheading scores of non-Muslims, including infants, ISIS is simply following this sadistically bloody paradigm set by the prophet. So bloody, in fact, that Muhammad was recognized as one of the most violent figures of the 7th century. Islamic historians tell us that in 627 AD, Muhammad beheaded over 700 men and boys of the Khorasan tribe in Medina, Arabia. By committing this act of barbarism, the prophet was able to accomplish his long-stated goal of wiping the ancient tribe off the map. The Quran itself, and you can read in Shura, if you have a Quran, and I do have one, but in Shura 47, verse 4, this is how it reads. When you meet the unbelievers, strike the neck. And so when you are seeing what you're seeing on TV, and even as they you know, have on their fight, this is all part of their ideology. It's very interesting that the Middle East and what's going on, and as you're looking at end times events and what's transpiring in our world, that it becomes, uh, it's not hard for us when we're reading our Bibles going, I could see how this could happen. How this could be the mode and the means by which believers would have to give up their lives during the tribulation period. These Arab countries today, they practice capital punishment by beheading. In Saudi Arabia, this practice is sanctioned to the point that some beheadings are actually of public affair. 
The sword, they call it the sword of Islam, is the image that is emblazoned on the Saudi Arabia flag that you're looking up on the screen here. The words uh, that we read at the bottom or that are, that are in Arabic, the sword of Islam uh, really is, is all speaking about uh, there is no God but God. Muhammad is the messenger of God. That's what it reads. They're bent on the destruction of Christians and on the destruction of Israel. Very um, important to keep in touch with what's going on in the world right now for us as believers. So we can pray, really. That's what we need to be doing. Now look in your Bibles, verse 5. But the rest of the dead, and the rest of the dead, I believe, is making reference to those who have rejected Christ. These are the unrighteous. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And so what's going to happen is, is that you have the unbeliever that is going to remain really in a holding place really until the thousand year millennial reign is up. And then they are going to be resurrected. And so really there are really only two groups that you see in scripture, there are people that are saved and there are people that are not saved. Very simple in scripture. You either know Jesus Christ or you don't. And there's not, a, there's not an in-between little place for people. You know him or you don't. In the book of uh, Daniel in chapter 12, we read, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. One of two places. We see those who are brought back to life in the first resurrection that is referred to here in verse 5. But this first resurrection really encompasses uh, really a number of different resurrections. It's not just one resurrection, but it's a series of resurrections that all fall under the first resurrection. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. He says, uh, he, he really gives us the order of what we call the first resurrection. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep are believers. Christ is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead because he rose and was the first one to be resurrected. And then he goes on to say, for since by Adam came death, by man, speaking about Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. And here's the order. Christ is the first fruits. He was the first one to raise from the dead. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. Okay, so we know that at the rapture of the church that there's going to be a resurrection of those who have died in Christ, right? During the church age period that we're in right now. All those that died will be resurrected at the rapture. The dead in Christ are going to rise first, and those of us that are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air. Paul goes on to say, then comes the end, 
And when, when he, speaking about Jesus, delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Did you know that the last enemy is not going to be Satan? It's going to be death itself is going to be cast into the lake of fire. Next week, when we get to verse 14 of chapter 20 here, we're told that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. You've all heard maybe this saying, born twice, you die one time. Born once, you die twice. It's very important that we are born twice. You need physical birth. You need spiritual birth. You die once. But if you do not become born again, there will be the second death for those that will be resurrected without Christ. It won't be until after the second resurrection of all the unrighteous that death and Hades are going to be cast into this lake of fire. It's going to be not until that time. Just so that you guys can have that in front of you, I put that on a slide. These are, this is the order of the first resurrection. The reason I bring this up is because you hear of all these different resurrections, but you only read of the first resurrection and the second, second death that we're going to be reading about next week. When the second death takes place, it's going to be unbelievers being raised for, to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But under this first resurrection, you have Christ the first fruits. Then you have all those that died during the church age that are going to be resurrected. You also have all of the Old Testament saints they, that also died. Those that believed in the coming Messiah, that put their faith in the coming Messiah that was come. Those that died in the Old Testament. And then all of the martyred tribulation saints, they're also going to be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period probably during that 75-day interval between the, the end of the seven years before the thousand-year millennial reign begins, there's that 75-day. I believe that the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected, but we are also going to have those that were martyred during the tribulation period that will also be resurrected during that time. All of these groups that you see up here all fall under the first resurrection, even though they are happening at different times. Does that make sense? It's, it's important to know that because it gets confusing if you don't. Verse 6 goes on to say, Blessed and holy is he who has part in what? The first resurrection. Why is it a blessing? Why is it a blessing if you're part of the first resurrection? Because the alternative is, the second, after that. It, blessed are those that take part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's a promise to you and I that know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. 
Next week, we're going to be looking at this second resurrection, which is going to be for those who have died without Christ, and they're going to stand before the great white throne judgment. So what are the characteristics of this coming millennium? I, I'm, you know, as I started putting this study together, I, I, and I shared this a few weeks ago, I could spend a whole year reading through all the passages that deal with this millennial kingdom and getting into the details. So I'm going to leave it up to you to do that, but I'm going to give you some characteristics of what this millennial kingdom is going to look like and what it's going to be like that we can find in Scripture. Satan will be bound during this time. This thousand-year period, Antichrist and the false prophet, they're already cast into the lake of fire, and Satan is bound for this thousand-year period. Christ is going to sit on the throne of David during this millennial reign of Christ. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11 to 16. The Abrahamic covenant, and I've already covered these covenants, is going to be fulfilled during this thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, this Abrahamic covenant has to do with the land that God had promised to Israel. And all of that land and all the borders and everything that were originally given to Israel, they're all going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom of God. He's going to bring it all back around and so that what God had promised them, they're going to have during that period of time. There's also going to be the regeneration of Israel and the new covenant that God has promised will be fulfilled. You can read about that in Jeremiah 31. There's also going to be peace and justice uh, during this time. It's going to prevail during this time. It's not going to be a perfect environment during the millennial reign of Christ. It won't be perfect because there are going to be people coming in that are going to be saved in the millennium, but it are going to be their children that are going to be born that are going to be unbelievers that will have to still come to a saving faith in Christ. But there is still going to be peace and there's going to be justice during this time. It's going to be the prevailing uh, way that it, the way it'll be during this millennial time. Israel will become also during this time the center of Gentiles' attention, meaning that the Gentile nations are going to, during this time, have their focus upon Israel, their land, the temple that is going to be set up there in Jerusalem, this restored temple and this city that is going to be there during the millennial reign of Christ. Righteousness, holiness, peace, security, joy, and gladness will also be characteristic during this time that you can read about in the book of Isaiah in chapter 32 and chapter 51, chapter 55. You can read about what it will be like during this millennial reign. There's also going to be a new millennial temple that is going to be constructed or that God is going to create even during this millennial reign of Christ. Remember that there is the tribulation temple that is going to be built during the seven-year period of time. That temple, I believe, is probably going to be destroyed. There's going to be a millennial temple that will replace that temple during the millennial reign. 
There's going to be a millennial river that is going to flow from the very throne room that is going to come from the throne of that temple and it's going to flow southward and it's going to go down to the Dead Sea. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 47. There's going to be a millennial Jerusalem during that time. Uh, It's called the, the city of God in Ezekiel chapter 48 verse 30. There's the 12 apostles that are going to be there giving the, uh, given the authority to judge the 12 tribes of Israel that are all going to be designated during that time. Israel during this millennial reign is also going to be over the Gentiles. Interesting, isn't it? Because right now the Gentile nations are oppressing God's people. And during this time it's going to be Israel that is going to be over the Gentile nations. There's also going to be the curse that is uh, part of the curse, not completely, but a part of the curse is going to be removed. You read in Isaiah 11.6 that the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a child uh, shall lead them. And so there is going to be, I believe, even a portion of the curse removed during this time. And then lastly, in the book of Amos in chapter 9, the earth is going to be fruitful. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine. All of this said and all of this going on in this millennial kingdom to come to fulfill the covenants and promises and purposes of God that what Satan and mankind has destroyed, God says, I'm going to take all of this back and restore it and set up my throne here on earth and restore it to what it would intentionally be. And then I'm going to show you really where the hearts of man are because this world, we're going to see really where the heart of mankind is. Because remember, those that come into the millennium, the only ones coming into the millennial kingdom are going to be those that receive Christ during the tribulation period, they're going to come into this millennial reign of Christ as believers. There's not going to be any non-believers coming in. So you've got a thousand-year period of time that these believers are going to be having children. It'll be their children that are going to have to give their life to Christ. So even in this restored, revived, regenerated millennial kingdom here on earth, we're going to see that the hearts of man are still have the ability to turn against God, even in a what we might say close to a perfect environment, just like Adam and Eve failed in the garden when they disobeyed. It shows you the very nature uh, of man. It says in, in, uh, in verse 9, no, verse, excuse me, verse 7, Now when the thousand years had expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number, we're told, is as the sand of the sea. Now, this gets a little bit, uh, when we read this, we, we read, and that, this to me makes the question of why. And I think the question of why is answered in the fact that God is showing mankind 
really that even after this thousand years, that when Satan is released, it just shows you that he's going to, once again, he's going to go out and try to deceive the nations. And that those that are uh, the believers and seeing this will really be able to see really the very nature in the heart of man. Because we're told that those that go out, the the nations that are deceived by Satan that is released for for a little while, it says that he goes out to the four corners of the earth, which is a way of saying this encompasses the whole earth. This is nations that encompass the world that are going to be fall under this deception. And he refers to them here as Gog and Magog, not to be confused with the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39. I believe it's terminology that is being used here, speaking about these nations that are going to come once again to battle. And we're told that the number is as the sand of the sea. So how many people can be born and how big of a population can come back into this world over the course of a thousand years? Quite a bit, because this is a literal thousand years that is transpiring right now. And now you have this number that numbers like the sand of the sea that comes like the battle of Gog and Magog and comes really once again to make war. Verse 9, and we're almost done. It says that they went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints. And the beloved city is what it's referred to here. This is in this millennial kingdom as I described it to you. It's called the camp of the saints, meaning you're going to have the uh, millennial Jerusalem and the millennial mountain and the city of God that will be there. The boundaries will be there. The 12 tribes of Israel and all the nations will come into this city. And here it is now, the enemies of this world as the sand of the sea coming and surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And then we're told, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This is going to be really, uh, it, it reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah. It reminds us of other, uh, of other, it actually reminds us of Ezekiel 38 and 39. When God will use a supernatural means really to bring something to an end. And that's what's going to transpire at the end of this. That fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. We, as Christians have been given really all of this so that we know what to look ahead to. What's going to transpire? How is this all going to play out? How's all this going to come to an end? And, you know, if you want to uh, spend quite a few hours just reading about the millennial kingdom and what that exactly will look like, uh, read it in light of this. Read it that, Lord, you're doing this for a purpose. And that's really what was hard for me as I'm reading all this. It's like, God, your ways are not my ways. But Lord, I trust you. And I believe that what you have laid out here and the plan that you have laid out has its purposes in what you're accomplishing in this world. And really magnifying him. It magnifies the Lord. Because this world is going to see that, you know what? As we look at our world coming down around us right now, 
And, and, and people saying, yeah, where's the promise of the Lord's return? People have been saying that for years. Jesus is coming back. Where's, you know, all you need to do is read your Bible. Just read the Word of God, and you'll see that, you know what, we are in the last days. We are in the days, and when you see these things to come, come to pass, look up. And that's what it should stir our hearts even today. And so next week... We'll be looking at the great white throne judgment. It won't be another uh, section of revelation that'll uh, be easy to take in, but it's an important part of scripture for us to know. And so uh, let's have um, the worship team come up and they're going to close us in a, a couple songs. The last verse in our text this morning reads this. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the victory that we have in Christ. That the deceiver, the devil the one that has deceived many, that he's already been judged. Did you know that? There's no hope for Satan. He can't repent. He's already been judged. But his final destination has already been marked out in verse 10 here. He's going to be cast into the lake of fire, and there he's going to be forever and ever. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.